Well, I wonder this morning why you've come to church. So why have you come to church? You know, when I moved into this area almost three years ago now, which is hard for me to imagine, but it was almost three years ago, it was, I think, on July 12th, so just in a few days from now, where you all voted upon uh, me to come and to serve as, as your senior pastor. Deeply grateful for that. But one of the things that struck me was just the sheer number of churches in this area. So in Santa Cruz, California, where I grew up, there were more weed dispensaries than there were Bible-believing churches. And yet, come here to Arkansas, and it seems here in Northwest Arkansas, at least, that there were churches all over, all that I could see. There were many church plants popping up and sprouting up on a monthly basis. And so I did some digging, and when you measure churches per capita of all 50 states, where do you think Arkansas ranks? Churches per capita. Someone's third. I hear a third. This isn't exactly the prices, right? But, you know. Third, I'm taking even more. Just go to shout it out. Four. First, yes. Yes, there it is. You may be surprised, but Arkansas ranks of all 50 states first in churches per capita. Of course, in some studies, it was second behind West Virginia. But lo and behold, nonetheless, lots of churches. So however way you look at it, Given all the options in Northwest Arkansas, I'm going to ask the question, why this church? Why would you choose to gather here in this place right with these people? Now, is it the, the plethora of convenient parking that we offer? <laughs> How about all that bold and clear street signage? Maybe it's the simple layout of our campus. Maybe our trendy architecture, the quality of the coffee in the foyer, I'm obviously being a little bit tongue-in-cheek and playful here. There isn't any coffee in the foyer. Our parking obviously isn't all that convenient. A little easier in the summer, but not all that convenient. I still find that I need a map and a compass if I'm to get around this campus. Right, and this, this doesn't always, this here doesn't exactly speak to sort of the hipster crowd. So Gallup did some research this past year, and here's what they found about people and churches. The largest factor in one's choice of a church are programs. Programs. Right? What do you offer for my kids? Do you have a Celebrate Recovery program? What about a Financial Peace University? Those kinds of programs tailored to our sense of individual need are the single greatest factor that determine why we go to a particular church. The next largest factor, dynamic and inspiring leaders. Something like that, right? <laughs> After that individual's choice of a church, it's, it's based on, quote, the, the praise band or the choir or the cantors. And if you don't know what that is, just sort of in more liturgical churches, that's the person who leads sort of in liturgy and in, in, in response. Okay, so that's what we value when it comes to church. But what does God value? What does God value in his churches? You know, and when it comes to the church, how confident this morning are you that your priorities actually align with God's priorities? What even are God's priorities as we think about our churches and our gathering together? 
And friends, to help us think through that, I want to invite you to turn back in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 4, verses 1 to 16 this morning. If you don't happen to have a Bible, we provide them the seatbacks before you. They're the, those red books, and you can find Ephesians chapter 4 on page 977. Page 977. Now, we come this morning in Ephesians 4 really to the great turning point in the book, in this letter of Paul's to this young Christian church. Because for really three straight chapters, we've been turning over and over, like like a beautiful jewel, this great salvation that God has accomplished for his people. The Father has elected and predestined us. The Son redeemed and forgiven us. The Spirit secured and sealed that salvation for us. And, And Paul's great encouragement is that if God has done all this for us in Christ, nobody can take that from us. That's the salvation that Christ has won. And yet it's not because we're worthy. Right, chapter 2, grace comes not because of our worthiness, because he's very clear we're all sinners. We're all objects of his wrath. Paul gloriously sort of juxtaposes there in Ephesians chapter 2 the misery of our own human condition in verses 1 to 3 with really the magnificence of God's divine compassion in verses 4 to 10. For this God we read being rich in mercy, he's the one who what made us alive together in Christ. But Paul gloriously now turns and he shows us how this gospel that he would have audibly preached to them, well, how is that gospel now made visible? Well, we see as we move on from 2.11 up through chapter 3 that it's not primarily in small groups, it's not in Bible studies, it's not even in parachurch movements, but the gospel is made visible, Paul says, in the gathering of local churches, chapter 3, verse 10, where Jew and Gentile are united as one new humanity a new community, right, the new Israel of God. And so if you look down in your Bibles to chapter 4, verse 1, notice opens, and Paul writes, I therefore, indicating that therefore, indicating that what's going to follow in chapters 4 to 6 are really the implications, the the consequences of what God has already done in chapters 1 to 3. And then we come in chapter 4, verse 1, to something we haven't seen. It's a command that we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, to be clear, when Paul's saying we're to to walk, he's not referring to physical walking. He's not speaking at that point to sort of our posture, you know, don't slouch, shoulders back, don't shuffle your feet. He's not referring to physical walking like that. That's just a metaphor, biblical metaphor, for how we're to live our lives. He's talking about the conduct of our own lives. And we've noted that that calling here in particular, too, it's, it's not a calling Paul uses to refer to vocation. That's sometimes how we use that word calling in terms of vocation. He's speaking of this calling to our salvation. God has called us to be saved in Christ. And we've noted, though, in chapters 1 to 3, the striking lack of any commands, which is why we're struck when we come to chapter 4, verse 1, and we find a command. Because 1 to 3, chapters 1 to 3, those have all been sort of imperative-free zones. No commands. No commands at all. Instead, what Paul wants us to do is he wants to sort of, in these first three chapters, have us sit back and deep into a leather recliner and marvel as we look at the big screen of what God is doing in salvation history, where he has taken a people who did not love him and have not loved him and had no interest in loving him, people who are sinners by nature, people like you and me, and he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, and he sent him to live the perfect life you and I haven't lived to die on the cross as a sacrifice, as a substitute for sin, 
He paying the wages or suffering, we should say, bearing the wages of our sin so that all those who would turn from their own sin and trust in Christ, they can be saved. They can be delivered. And God raised this Jesus up from the grave, resurrected him as a demonstration that he accepted the sacrifice. So whether it's Jew or Gentile, right? You could be the, you could imagine yourself to be the worst sinner in the world. You could see yourself as the most holy person in the world, right? We all are saved through the cross of Christ. And that's the gospel Paul's been preaching, a gospel to be born out in love, Jew and Gentile together. You know, if you haven't, if you're coming this morning and you're not a believer, that's the, that's the gospel message Christians hold to. And these commands that are going to come are all going to come as a consequence of that message. So if you've come and you're not a Christian, I don't want you to confuse some of the commands that now start to flow like waves just rolling one after another as this is how I become a Christian. Now we become a Christian by fleeing our own righteousness and trusting solely in the righteousness of Christ, looking to him alone. And if you have questions about that, I'd love to chat with you, any of our staff, those at the door would love to chat with you afterwards. But we can't, I should say, we also can't confuse that order, you know, of, of, of what God has done preceding what we're to do. Ever notice the Ten Commandments, how they begin? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Right? I saved you, God says, therefore have no other gods before me, the rest of the commandments. So that's the order in the scriptures we see again here in Ephesians, we see all over the Bible. And if you get that order backwards, what we must do, and then how God responds to us, you've entirely lost Christianity. Now, we don't live rightly so God will love us. God has loved us in Christ, which is why we choose to live rightly. And that's the basic Christian message. And 4.1 is really the header. It's the summary sentence for all of chapters 4 to 6. As Paul now unfolds this grace that saved us and how this grace is to be at work in our own church communities, in our own homes, in our own families, in our marriages. But it's since the gospel is made visible in local churches that it really comes as no surprise when Paul begins this new section. And just notice even in, your, in the, the sermon cards, there's a, there's a new sermon series title. We've moved from these timeless questions to the application of this. All right, so he's, he's moving here, and, and it's coming as no surprise that Paul's going to focus first on their lives together in the local church. Because all of us have come this morning, we've come right here, and we have our own set of expectations when it comes to church. Expectations of, of what it's to be and how it's to function and how this church should encourage us. But again, what are God's expectations? What, what's his vision for the church? We pick up chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes the summary statement, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And now he begins to describe how they're to do that practically within their own bodies. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. Now in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth, 
He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, if you just take a hammer and a chisel to our text, it breaks apart right there at verse 7. And most translations like the CSB, NIV, even the NASB, they note that. There's a new paragraph starting in in verse 7. And verses 1 to 6 are really dominated by that word, if you caught it, that word one. That word one. The focus there is our unity, our oneness together. Whereas in chapter 4, verses 7 to 16, the shift and focus is now upon the diversity among us as individuals through the distinct gifts that Christ has given. I think Paul's basic point, if you put this together, is that the unity that defines us, verses 1 to 6, is accomplished through the gifts that distinguish us. Verses 7 to 16. So if you're going to try to pull it all together, that's it. I'll just state that again. I think his basic point is that the unity that defines us, verses 1 to 6, is accomplished through the gifts that distinguish us, verses 7 to 16. And I think more broadly, this text gives us really two lessons, offers us two lessons about God's vision for his church. And those lessons are just going to serve as our main points this morning. So first lesson is this. It's this, God's concern is our corporate unity, not our personal convenience. That's really his point, I think, in verses 1 to 6. I'm going to state that again. God's concern is our corporate unity, not our personal convenience. Again, that dominant word in verses 1 to 6 is that word one. Seven times Paul is going to use that word, particularly in verses 4 to 6, which is more often in these verses than you'll find it anywhere else in the Bible. And he's exhorting us to live a particular way in verses 2 to 3 because, verses 4 to 6, there is, as he says, one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And just to be clear, when he refers to one body in verse 4, again, he's not referring there to our physical bodies. He's referring to Christ's body. He's referring to the church. This was his practice back in Ephesians 1, verse 23, 2-3, 2-16, 3-6. That body is the church body. So Paul's saying the unity of God's people, right, this one body, is marked by the unity of our common confession, one faith and one baptism, baptism just being a visible picture of that faith we profess, which is itself grounded in the unity of the triune God, Father, 
Son, Holy Spirit. He says, one Spirit, one Lord, one God and Father of all. In other words, we together are to be one because our hope is one, because our faith is one, because our God is one. And friends, Paul couldn't be any more clear about his overriding concern for unity within the church family. And Paul's not writing here of the universal church. He's writing here of local churches. He's writing and delivering this letter to churches. This letter is being read in churches. And when Paul's writing to them and saying, you know, look around at one another and and live this way, they're looking around. They know exactly who the one another's are. They're the people within their own bodies. He's writing to local churches. God is one, and so his point is we must be one. Now, this unity doesn't mean uniformity. So Paul's envisioning a church, and the church is there in Ephesus, where the great cultural divide at the time of Jew versus Gentile, that's bridged. That's been bridged by a greater love that they share together, which is Christ. So other than sharing a common language, they all would have been able to speak Greek. These Jews and Gentiles wouldn't dress the same, they wouldn't eat the same, they wouldn't shop in the same stores, they wouldn't even live in the same communities most likely. Yet they would put all of that aside and they would worship together because they shared Christ together. And so it is supposed to be with all Christians today. Right? We won't wear the same clothes We won't style our hair in the same way. We won't drive the same cars. We won't shop at the same stores. You know, if I look at the playlists of music on your phone or devices, it won't look the same as mine. We're we're not uniformity together. We're not uniform together, so to speak, because you can take a picture, right? Take all the residents in Fayetteville, take a snapshot picture. There's no way just looking at the picture to tell who are the Christians. You can't discern that simply from a picture because Christianity doesn't have an abaya, it doesn't have a hijab, it doesn't have a kippah, it doesn't have any of those symbols that distinguish us outwardly. The only way to tell who is a Christian is to hear their confession and then watch their life together. It's when that still picture is turned into a movie, that's when you can tell who is the true biblical faithful Christian. And Paul's saying the kind of, this kind of oneness where people who the world thinks ought to loathe one another, when they instead love one another, this is the kind of community that is supernatural. And this is the kind of community that makes the gospel visible. And friends, this is the kind of community Paul understands, and we would know that's hard. This kind of community, it's not easy. It takes effort. It takes work to love and care for people who aren't like you people who don't share the same interests and passions, people who don't share a common history, a common background, who don't share your same political views or immigration platform. Like With those folks, it can take extra work to have unity and oneness. It's not convenient. And we love convenience. We're addicted to convenience. Anything to make our lives a little less disruptive and a little easier, most of us are all in. That's why we gravitate to people like us. Which is exactly why Paul has to say in verse 3, therefore, right, we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And when he says eager, he he doesn't mean excited. Paul's not talking about our emotional response. That word eager is, you can translate it, take pains, to labor, to strive after. It's why the CSB will say, make every effort to maintain this unity. Well, how do we do that? 
Well, first, Paul's been talking about the church and the importance of the church. And we do that by first formally committing ourselves to a church. Because just to state the obvious, right, you can't maintain unity in a body if you're not in a body and a part of a body. But we do it as we gather together right now. Sitting under the preaching of the word, Paul's going to talk more in verses 7 to 16 about the importance of the word. We do it and we gather together like we are tonight, so Ryan talks about that, the gathering we have this evening as a church family to hear from members of the body, to, to pray for members of the body, to hear about various ministry in the body that we don't have time to share about all on Sunday morning. You know, we can, we can pray and hear from one another in our age-segregated ABFs. We can do that in our own small groups or do that among friends, and that's great, but there is something distinct when the body gathers together, praying and caring not simply because we're of the same age demographic or because we share the same interests, but because we share this common love for Christ. That's what distinguishes Christians from others. It's when the recent widow prays for the newly engaged couple. Or the college student who's rarely traveled outside of Arkansas prays for the missionary couple that's headed back to Sri Lanka. That's how we ensure that the supernatural community, our supernatural community, doesn't simply simply devolve into demographic similarity. For notice this kind of community, Paul says we can't manufacture it. This kind of community is not something we can reverse engineer. He's saying in saving us, the Spirit has created it. He commands us to maintain it, to make every effort to maintain it. Which is why he says in verse 2, we're to live with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You know, it's interesting, that expression, humility and gentleness, is how Luke in Acts describes Paul's ministry among the Thessalonians. In other words, Paul is in effect here saying, imitate me. Follow my example among you. Follow me. And that, friends, that's the very nature of discipling. We call others to imitate us, to follow us, insofar as we ourselves are following Christ and following the example of Christ. And discipling others, helping them to grow in Christ, this isn't Paul's expectation simply what pastors do or what especially spiritual persons do, but what all Christians are to do, what we're all to do. So, member of UBC... Who do you meet with? Not to talk sports or politics or books or maybe even worse, gossip. But who do you intentionally invest in spiritually by opening up the Bible together, by reading a good Christian book together, by praying together? Paul understands that's part of how we maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's No such thing as a disciple of Christ who doesn't care about helping other disciples grow in Christ. It's a basic expectation of what a Christian is in the New Testament. And yet Paul says all this is to be done with patience. That word patience carries this notion of being long-suffering. Patience recognizes we're all works in progress. Every one of us. Regardless of how long you've been a Christian, how much you've been growing, we are all works in progress. So, for example, when a CEO takes over a a struggling corporation, 
right, the board will give that individual, give him or her some time to right the ship. So if they bleed cash, right, they're still in the red for a number of quarters, they give them some time. They understand it takes some time to turn things around. Same with a coach of, say, a football program that's gone 1-7 in the SEC. Nobody, in theory at least, nobody expects perfection the first year. But when it comes to our marriages sometimes, when it comes to our own children, when it comes to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we often forget this. We don't have this long suffering. Too often we're surprised by another sin. We're offended that someone has sinned against us. Offended by their immaturity. As if we expect them to be completed works, or at least nearly completed works. When God is calling us here to bear with one another in love. Recognizing all of us again, works in progress. Paul's saying it's this kind of a church. A church that is made up of members that prizes the prosperity of the corporate community over their own personal convenience. This is the church that God values. Because it's this kind of supernatural community that makes the glory of this invisible God visible to the world. Now this kind of community sounds an awful lot like a tall order. But I think here is where once again, as we move into verses 7 to 16, we're confronted by one of the most basic truths we see all through Scripture. And that's what God requires of us, Christ supplies for us. All throughout. What God requires of us, Christ supplies for us. That's not the second lesson. That's just something I need you to see. All right? So the same principle at work here. Because we see in verses 7 to 16 how the unity that God demands of us corporately is accomplished through the gifts that Christ is going to distribute individually. So verse 7 asserts that we've all been given gifts by Christ. And then verses 8 to 10, Paul supports that claim by pointing to Psalm 68. He quotes it, talks about it. And then really in verses 11 to 16, he elaborates on what some of these gifts include. And then he especially highlights their purpose. Why has God done all this in Christ, giving gifts to his church? Verse 12, to equip the saints for building up the body of Christ. And then lest we miss it again, the end of verse 16, why gifts are given? So that it, the body, builds itself up in love. Friends, this brings us to our, I think our second lesson. Our gifting, our individual gifting is for others' maturity not our own prosperity. Right? That's the basic lesson of the second half, verses 7 to 16. Our gifting is for others' maturity, not our own prosperity. And yet, that's not often how we talk about gifts. Sometimes we talk about spiritual gifts, and there is both this good desire to be, to be utilized through our gift but there is also often in us and in our own hearts this competing desire not just to be utilized, but to be recognized. To be recognized. It's why in 1 Corinthians, what does Paul note? How many of those in the church in Corinth, what did they want? They wanted the gift of tongues. Not in the sense of gibberish or some private prayer language, but they wanted the ability to speak in discernible foreign languages. Like they did in Acts 2. 
Why did they want that? Well, because that gift is obviously a supernatural gift. You know, there's hospitality, there's gifts of administration, but I've got the gift of tongues. That is obviously supernatural. That's immediately recognizable. But what does Paul say? Paul says there they should value instead those gifts, 1 Corinthians 14, 4, that what? Build up the church. It's the same principle we're seeing here, those gifts that build up the church. It's edification that is concerning Paul, not self-exaltation. It's the body's edification. That's Paul's primary concern as he starts to talk about the gifts Christ gives to his church. Right? Gifts are always meant to be a blessing. It's not why Christ gives them. They're never there to bolster our own reputations. It's not why Christ gives them. We're not gifted so we can showcase our talents or our abilities. There's not to be the sense of self-promotion within the church, the kind of promotion we have to know in our workplaces. We have to know in the world at large, that kind of self-promotion, that's to have no place in the body of Christ. Right? These gifts are for others' maturity. Not each has received maturity, not our own promotion. It's what Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, one another. As each has received a gift, use it to what? Serve one another. To serve one another. Because we've all been given gifts. So look down at verse 7. We've all been given gifts. But I think a better way is not sort of but. He's not contrasting anything. He's really sort of, he's, he's, he's supporting. He's saying, for, for grace was given to each one of us. Again, individually is the turn here. Individually, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now that grace there, it's not, that's not the, the grace of salvation. That's, that's the grace in the form of gifts for service. So that word for grace is charis. It's where we actually get our word charismatic. Properly understood, Paul's saying every Christian is a charismatic. We're all charismatic in the sense that we've all been gifted by God with particular gifts to be a, a blessing to others. Now the charismatic movement has sometimes co-opted that word, charismatic. It's sometimes distorted that word. So sometimes we associate the gifts of the Spirit with, if you've been watching any World Cup and you've been watching Neymar, right, and the way he has thrown himself, like, irrationally on the ground and rolled all about in these fits, and sometimes people think, yeah, that's sort of charismatic stuff. That's not how the Bible talks about charisma. The Bible talks about charisma as gifts and the blessing and the service of others. And he's saying every Christian is gifted with the grace of salvation, Every Christian who is gifted with the grace of salvation is also gifted with grace for service. Which means, brother or sister in Christ, in some discernible way, you have been gifted by God to be a blessing to the congregation you're a part of. And God intends you to use that gift in the blessing of that body. And if you're not using that gift in the blessing of the body, in some way the body is left impoverished. In some way, the body is left limping or hobbling about because that, that gift isn't being exercised. It's not being used in the service of the body. Now, that quote from Psalm 68 in verse 8, that has generated a good bit of discussion. If you have a study Bible, no doubt that's probably spent a good bit of time in that study Bible. Commentaries spend pages on this because in Psalm 68, God is the one who has ascended and God received gifts from men. But here we're reading that Christ is the one who has ascended, and he didn't receive gifts, rather he gave gifts to men. When he says to men, that's just, that word in Greek is inclusive, men and women. He gave gifts to, to all of his people. So what, I think what's happening here in Psalm 68, 
it describes God's sort of triumphal ascension to the throne. So he's defeated his enemies and he's triumphantly been raised upon his throne. And yet because Christ is the one who has ascended and now sits enthroned over his enemies, Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, Paul is seeing in that picture of Psalm 68, he's seeing in that a picture of Christ. A picture of Christ's own resurrection and exaltation and ascension. For Christ not only received gifts from men, just think back to when he was a child, how all the wise men gave him gifts. Those gifts pointing back to the Queen of Sheba who gave gifts befitting Solomon a king. So they're coming to Christ, giving him gifts befitting a king. He himself was receiving gifts. And yet, what does he do at his crucifixion? Then he's raised. And then what does he do in Acts 2? He gives gifts. He gives gifts to his church, Acts 2 at Pentecost, to be a blessing to the body. In other words, Saul is seeing broadly in Psalm 68 a fulfillment of Christ's own ministry. But this question even in verse 9 raises another issue because Paul goes on and says, what does it, he ascended, mean, but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. And Roman Catholicism, for example, takes that to be Christ in between his crucifixion and exaltation, sort of battled in hell. He descended into hell. But friends, I don't think we're to think of Christ here as like Kate Beckinsale, if you know those underworld movies, you know, where she's down there like defeating all these evil powers. That's not the picture of Christ I think we're to get from this text. It makes good theater. It doesn't make great theology. Because when Paul says Christ descended into the lower regions, he says lower regions, note, comma, the earth. He's saying the lower regions are the earth. The lower regions are the earth. The earth is the lower region. The descent that Paul's talking about is not some descent of Christ into hell. It's his descent in the incarnation. That's what Paul's talking about here in verse 9. And then this one who descended also then ascended at his exaltation, the resurrection far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And what are the gifts that now Christ, because he has been ascended and Pentecost distributes gifts, what are some of these gifts he's given? He names them, verse 11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. But one thing just to note immediately about this list, this list isn't exhaustive. If you know about spiritual gift lists in the New Testament, none of the lists we read about, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, Romans 12 we read, Ephesians 4, none of these are meant to be exhaustive lists. Because the list in 1 Corinthians 12 would include helping gifts and administration gifts. Romans 12 include gifts of service and giving and leadership and mercy ministry. The point being, nothing's exhaustive. They're, they're a sampling of the gifts God gives, not a summary, a comprehensive summary of them. And Paul's focus, notice, when he talks about these gifts, what's the common denominator between these gifts he gives? Well, it's that they're speaking gifts. Like that same concern he had back in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Right? The apostles, who were they? They were eyewitnesses of Christ. They were those who were commissioned by Christ in Acts 1, 21 and 22. And what was the task of apostle? The central task of an apostle was to provide an authentic and an authoritative witness to Christ. How did they do that? Through their teaching and through often miraculous signs and wonders. And he talks about prophets, those uniquely gifted in, in the illumination of the scriptures for the establishment, for the, for the foundation of the church. Guys like Agabus in, in Acts 21, for example, 
And I understand from what we talked about in Ephesians 2.20 earlier that the, the church was built, as Paul says, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets who taught God's word. But you know, it's interesting, when you trace the book of Acts, once a church, church exists, the miraculous signs of the apostles tend to stop. It seems they exist as a temporary means of confirming the truth of the gospel. So then what's the permanent means of confirming the truth in the gospel? Well, that's the church, founded upon the regular teaching of God's word. That's Paul's concern here. So when the gospel first enters a region, the spirit enables miraculous signs, and yet once the gospel takes root, what does the spirit do? The spirit enables miraculous community. Community born out in the local church. Community that is created. Community that is then carried along by the word. Which is why Paul then speaks of evangelists who proclaim that word, of shepherds and teachers who regularly edify the body by that same word. And what's the purpose of all this word ministry he's talking about? Verse 12, it's right there. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's the purpose. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Friend, I wonder, what do you expect your pastors and leaders to do? What do you think you've hired them to do? Is it to equip you for ministry? You know, I think with the professionalization of the church in the past 50 years, many of us have sort of somewhere along the line, we bought into this notion that ministry is for the theologically trained clergy. You know, ministry is best left to whom? Best left to the paid professionals. It's why we have staff. Our staff are sort of the hired hands of ministry. So maybe we need a mercy ministry to the community, and we think that would assist us in a church. And so what should we do first? Well, someone suggests, hey, the best way to kickstart it and to manage it and to sustain it is to hire a staff person to do it. And the fact that we have someone on staff doing mercy ministry or, or local outreach or youth, that makes us feel better. Perhaps deep down, we feel a little bit less guilty for while we may not be doing it ourselves, at a minimum, at least we've got someone on staff who's doing it for us. But recognize that whole paradigm of ministry is diametrically opposed to what Paul is preaching about and what he's teaching here in Ephesians 4. Now, he's not saying that staff is bad by any means. He's simply noting that the purpose of, of staff, of shepherds and pastors and leaders, is not to do ministry for the church, but to equip the church to then do the ministry. It's why I've said to Guy, so when Guy came, Guy Wilcox, yeah, he leads the music, but he also assists a lot with youth. And it's why I said, listen, you're going to have to plan some events and you'll need to spend some time coordinating activities. But if you look at the context of your week, and the vast majority of your time is spent as an event planner and a personal discipler of a few youth, you have failed in your job. That's not what we hired you to do. We hired you to help equip the church so they know how to disciple the youth of the church. That's the calling of staff and of leaders. And friends, that's not how we think about staff within the church. I'm guessing that's probably not how this church has thought a lot about their own staff. But that's actually how the Bible thinks about staff. We gather as a church, even right now, not to observe others do ministry, 
but we gather to what? To mobilize ourselves for ministry. So in a sense, we're a hospital because we bind up the wounded, we heal them with the word, but then we're also an army because we gather here, we mobilize and send out to do that work. So we're the, whereas the elders and the pastors, they will equip the church through the ministry of the word. Deacons and staff, what do they do? They facilitate that ministry so that members can do ministry. So that members can do ministry. Let me just state that again to make sure you've got it. Elders and pastors equip the church through the ministry of the word, like I'm doing right now. Deacons and staff then facilitate that ministry, whereas the members do the ministry. It's not something we hire out. Paul says that's what we should all be doing together, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Because in verses 4 to 16, Paul's going to contrast what it's like to be a child with what it's like to be an adult, what it's like to be mature. Now, as a kid, I am, I confess, old enough where I remember when Velcro first came out on sneakers. This was a really big deal. It was all the rage. No need to tie your shoes anymore. Again, we love convenience. You can just Velcro them. Well, I had, I had new shoes, but I had to have a pair of these Velcro shoes. Right, and then there were swatch watches, which I don't know if they still exist, but swatch watches were a really big deal. And then guest jean jackets, right? All these fads, all these fads. And I jumped from fad to fad. I'm not going to try to guess what the fads are today. When I try to quote singers and musicians, I misquote their names, mispronounce. I'm not going to go there. The point is, it's generally a sign of immaturity to be given over to such fad over and over again. You know, in the Christian life, we have our own fads. We're all addicted to novelty. We love new things. So there was the, the seeker-sensitive fad. There was the purpose-driven fad. There was the prayer of Jabez fad. There was the emerging church fad. There was the fad of pastors calling themselves life coaches, right? I sort of go on and on. All these fads within the church. But Paul's saying we need this intense, faithful exposition of word ministry in our churches if we as a church are to reach maturity, it's this ministry that delivers us, this word ministry that delivers us from the, the tyranny of novelty and immaturity and helps us move toward the maturity he's writing about here in verses 14 to 16. You know, and Paul, when he was in Tyrannus, he lectured there for five hours a day, about 11 to 4 o'clock, when many folks were taking a sort of a long siesta, particularly in the heat of summers, he, he would teach for five hours a day, and that wasn't a seminary training program. That was for ordinary Christians. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we read in Acts 19.20 that the word of the Lord continued to what? Increase and to prevail mightily. You know, Calvin in Geneva preached five to seven sermons a week. His congregation would regularly gather before work, after work, sometimes during breaks to hear from the word. Times of great revival in God's church have always been accompanied by periods when, when God's word was revived among his people. There was a revival of that word. It's what produces us, it's what rather prevents us and protects us from being, as he said, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, as he says in verse 14. Rather, it's through the truth, verse 15, that we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So friend, I want you to see 
that Christ gave gifts to his church, particularly these gifts he's talking about here of, of pastors and leaders and shepherds, not to effect change themselves, but to, to equip the body to effect that change. The Sunday morning sermon, as one said, the Sunday morning sermon isn't the finishing line, it's the starting line of your own week. It's why we want God's word built into us so that we can then go out and we can build that word into one another. It's why we are given gifts in the service of this body, not again for our own prosperity, not for our own promotion, but for the maturity of others. Friends, this is God's vision for his church. I just wonder if it's your vision. Is this how you've thought about the church? Because I confess it is so easy to come to church with a consumer mindset. It's so easy to come to church and to sit down and to have had a bit of a tough morning and to ask the question, what have you done for me lately? That's a natural question we tend to ask. But just recognize the Bible calls us to ask the opposite question. It's not, what have you done for me lately? It's, what have I done for you lately? What am I committing to do and the gifts you've given to serve you? Our concern, it's not to be personal convenience. God's overriding concern is our own congregational holiness. And when it comes to our own involvement, we should be not seeking to be recognized, right? We should be using those gifts in order to be utilized wherever there is need, right? So the body can be built up in love. So statements of faith, those things are all useful. Denominations, beneficial. Sound teaching, right? That's invaluable too. But nothing displays in Paul's mind the gospel quite like supernatural community and a supernatural community of faith that gospel preaching and living produces amidst one another. You know, Michael Lawrence is a friend of mine, and Lord willing, he's going to come in the spring, this coming spring, he's going to be preaching here. He wrote that book, Conversion, that I've been passing out a good bit, a great book on biblical theology. I think they're recommending in the biblical theology class. But, you know, thinking along these similar themes in Ephesians 4, uh, Michael Lawrence wrote this. He wrote, you know, to some extent, the postmoderns are right. There is a social character to knowledge. There is a community aspect to our perception of reality. And that's why culture is so powerful. It shapes our perception of what's true, of what is plausible. Now, in a fallen world, culture becomes a plausibility structure for unbelief, for the denial of God, and for the exaltation of self. And that is why the apostles are so concerned about the unity of the local church, because the church is a counterculture. It's an alternative plausibility structure for faith. Friends, the kind of Christian community that God desires in his churches, it doesn't just make faith plausible, though it certainly does that, but it doesn't just make it plausible, it makes faith visible. It makes it visible. Where men and women are gathering together under the word, not just so that they can be built up, but so that they can then build that word into one another. Is this the kind of church community you value? Is this the kind of church community you're committed to building here? Is this the kind of church that we increasingly will be? Or will we be those who keep coming back week after week and asking, what have you done for me lately? Let's pray.
God, we give you praise for your word. We give you praise for the way in which we stare at it. And just use the simple power of observation. Don't need any great seminary training to look at this text and to stare at it and to observe all the good things you're doing in your church and through the word. And Lord, we pray that we would be increasingly marked as this kind of a community, a community that makes the gospel visible, a supernatural community that the world cannot explain and therefore gives us an opportunity to share Christ. Oh God, mark us increasingly in these ways, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.